0: Hi, I'm Michael and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about CODA, the 2021 film that just won Best Picture. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe.
1: (laughs) We are recording
0: in the past and we don't know what has happened yet in our reality. Um, uh, But yes, the 2021 film written and directed by Sean Hayter, based on the French film uh, named... The following, Brian will pronounce it for uh, me. La
2: Family Bellier, which is a very terrible pronunciation.
0: The Family Bellier. <laughs> That's why we had you do it. Spot on. <laughs> I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Uh, okay, so we're talking about Coda, and I want to start with where we all first saw it and by far, Trisha, you have the probably only interesting story because you saw this at Sundance. Tell us about your first experience watching Coda.
1: Yes, so I was fortunate enough to be able to virtually attend Sundance in January of 2021. And, you know, it was so... I had gone in person to Sundance in 2020, um, which some people think was one of the earliest super spreader events in the United States of COVID. (laughs) I was right there. Hey, (laughs) wasn't it great, Alex? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so then, you know, for the past couple of years since then, uh, Sundance has basically moved to a virtual platform that a lot of film festivals have done. Um, And in 2021, I had... You know, a lot of like, is it going to be the same? Are there going to be good movies? Did anyone make movies in 2020? Mm -hmm. You know, 2020 was such a like just wild year, I think, for everybody. And it was a smaller crop of movies, but Coda was one of the first that I saw. And it just knocked me over emotionally. Like I it was, I think, the second movie I saw. It was a very rainy morning in L.A., And I was sitting on my couch and I was like, let's just check this out. I couldn't make the app work, so I was just watching it on my laptop. And it's just such a sweet movie. And for being essentially, you know, like a a small movie, a coming-of-age story, it feels so good grounded and truthful and raw and at the same time so sweet and lovely like it's never saccharine it has this like sort of reality to it that makes it feel like really present and the performances are wonderful and um it's just I just remember being impressed and moved and you know it's about it feels like it's about so much more than it's really about again it's like one of these films that is small, but feels like it, it takes in, you know, more territory and like says more about life. And I, you know, I think too, there's a really important or moving family story at the heart of it. And so many of our, I don't know, the movies that touch us are movies that remind us right of the relationships that we have. Um, and so I think that this little family coming of age dramedy, uh, for whatever reason hit me, in that spot and music is a cheat code and there's a lot of wonderful yep. music and um, you know, Amelia Jones is so good. Like I love her voice and she's so lovely to watch in this. And so I think that's another, you know, just, it just like unlocked my little heart and I just melted into a weepy puddle on my couch and I tweeted about it right then and there. And I told you guys about it right then and there <laughs> in the Slack channel. I was like, guys, I just saw this movie. It's so great. And actually I just want to say for the record, despite all my anxiety, pretty much Like every movie that I saw at Sundance in 2021 really impressed me. Like I was expecting, I don't know what, something maybe, you know, feeling like thrown together or people who like are not, didn't put their best foot forward because they weren't able to or, you know, whatever it is. And it just wasn't that way at all. It was people who obviously made movies that they really cared about at with a lot of talent and a lot of craft. Um, And so I felt that way in 2021. I felt that way this year in 2022 also. And I can't wait until you guys get to see a a bunch of the movies that I saw this year too. So I'll see you guys next year when we're podcasting about (laughs) a couple of them that have been nominated for
0: Oscars. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was really fun to finally get around to seeing this movie that you've been telling us to see for a year and a half. Uh, And yeah, having a, a very similar experience of just like this was lovely it tells a story very simple clear and effective way and uh i think there's a lot of like strong structural things happening and it's uh yeah it's like this it's such a great example that you can point to of like hyper specific stories that are also completely universal like this is why it's fun to tell unique stories about specific cultures and all this stuff because in all of that as something totally universal that we can all relate to and i was very much feeling that the whole time and as you said music is cheat codes and there were definitely some moments where that happened and i was like oh there there are the tears that's <laughs> that's the emotion yep. it did it <laughs> yeah so it was i really enjoyed finally getting to to watch this movie i mm-hmm. thought you liked you? it yeah
3: yeah alex because did you you didn't see it at sundance but you saw it earlier i saw it like when it came out on apple tv okay Um, right right. yeah so i was actually i think visiting my parents at the time so we watched it together like as a family um and it was it was lovely it was a perfect you know watching with parents movie and and you know the thing that really struck me about it was it was one of those revelatory moments of wow i've never seen a full movie in which I'm really immersed in what it feels like to be in a deaf family and and like just the honesty of it and all the little funny things and all the little like you know really difficult things i think it was really nice to just be immersed in that world which i had i never had access to of just all the things that come with being the child of deaf parents um and so i think that was just yeah whenever i see a movie that allows me to have entry into a world i've never had access to it, it's really wonderful. And, and, and to see it done, you know, right. Where it's like, this is, you know, these are deaf actors. This is you know, a writer director writer who truly understands this experience. Um, so yeah, it's just great to see to see a movie that is able to put me in an experience I've never had before and for it to be done so authentically and with, with such love and with such wonderful actors. Um, and yeah, you know, and once again, talking about the cheat codes, just, yeah, the ending, uh and due you to know, that final hug and just yeah like it was like i couldn't i was i was you know having my you know cynical filmmaker brain on for a lot of the movie of like i see these tropes you're doing and i see this montage and what it's doing but by the end when the the, the family group hug just finally broke me and i was like <laughs> okay you got me movie you got me <laughs> uh and so yeah it's it's just lovely yeah awesome yeah brian what about you
2: uh, yeah, this this movie has reduced me to a puddle twice now um, <laughs> and far long before the ending. Um, I yeah, I, I, Trisha had mentioned it and I was excited to watch it. And then I watched it, you know, basically pretty much when it came out on streaming, uh, when we all had access to it and just. Fell in love with it right away. It was just so solid. The performances were so good. Um, We we know uh, Amelia Jones did not just win an Oscar. Past Us knows that because she was not nominated somehow, Um, which just blows my mind um and uh and yeah it just it flew to the top of my of my list of movies of the year and just stayed there as I continued to watch movies other movies from the year it was just like you you did it you did all the things um and and yeah it's that interesting thing of as you were saying Alex there is that sort of there's like a formulaic kind of pattern to this movie where you're like oh yeah you're just it's just like normal movie stuff, but you're just doing it really well. Um, And I think, you know, as you guys had mentioned earlier, there is that sort of the organic kind of adult feeling to it, where it's like we have a lot of young adult material out there that's like this needs to be watchable by all people and we can't like swear and we can't have sex and we can't do this and um you know i think during punch drunk love i was talking about the richard curtis comedies which is like the bridget jones and Notting hill and four weddings and love actually which is like we're gonna make a sort of rom-com but we're gonna have like lots of swearing and <laughs> it's like we could make something that's like fine for everybody, but we're going to make something that feels a little more real. This is really how people are and how people talk. And I think that that's why that's where this movie gets a lot of, of points is that it could have been a kind of hallmark movie of the week kind of thing. And on paper, in a lot of ways it feels generic's not the right word. Right. But like, it, there's like, there's a sense of it that feels um, kind of safe or, or, by the numbers but then it's just it's done with so much love and so much heart and and it's just done so expertly in the performances and everything that it just feels like it it transcends all of that and becomes something just you know best picture nominee worthy yeah Yeah.
3: it feels honest like it it doesn't it feels like all the performances and all the characters are coming from a really honest place which i think the hallmark movie of the week uh caricature is this doesn't feel honest this this doesn't feel like a real person this is a fake like dream person that you know the romantic interest you know that it there's nobody like that in this movie that feels like an imaginary person they all feel very real
1: well i saw somebody on twitter um unkindly compare this movie to yeah like a disney channel original movie Hmm. and i think that what sets this movie apart is exactly the thing that you guys are identifying, which is sort of the edge to it. But it doesn't feel like edginess for its own sake, right? Instead, it feels really keenly observed and it's subverting expectations, I think, in a really important way. So when we talked about The Favourite, We were sort of talking about, like, the crassness of the way that they talk to each other at times in that movie. And what that's doing very specifically is, you know, sort of subverting our expectations of, like, a proper period drama for comedic effect. But, you know, it's also doing some, like, thematic work and all this stuff, character work, obviously, in that movie. Um, And I think that that's what works about a lot of that stuff here. I was noticing it especially in the opening scene right where um it's right when they like land on the docks. You know, the first scene is like they're out catching fish and she's singing to herself and her brother and and her dad can't hear her. And then they go to the docks and she, you know, is arguing with this guy who's not giving them enough money for their fish. And then she goes and talks to, you know, uh her dad and her brother and gives them the information. And immediately we see there's like a very deliberate character moment for both the brother and the dad where we see how they're interacting. The three of them are interacting with each other, mm-hmm. you know, and she and her brother are signing these insults at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, in front of their father, right. Who also like is being very honest about how unhappy he is with mm-hmm. what's going on in the business. And it starts off on that foot of like, we're not going to sanitize your experience of this family's life just because they happen to have, you know, just because they happen to be from a culture that you might not be familiar with and might have different expectations of, right. Like if we have never encountered a family like this. We might not know how they are, or we might think that they, you know, are a certain way that is potentially, I don't know. Yeah. More family friendly than this, or that, that this material might be approached in that way. Um, But it's so nice to see that this family is just a family like any other. And the way that they talk to each other is very grounded.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's using all of that as you're pointing out to, to also show the family dynamic that they are like the, the adults treat the children like it, like adults, you know, they don't have to pretend to not swear in front of them. Like it is showing the, the relationship and the bond that this family has. And so it's, yeah, it's doing character work <clears throat> um, on top of all that. And, and I feel like it, what I was struck by is the, the character motivations all feel very uh, earned and believable. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, again, comparing to this, you know, Yeah, as you said, Alex, the caricature of like a Hallmark movie, whatever that is supposed to mean. But I feel like the, yeah, the bad version of this could be of any movie is when things are happening, you know, the beats that is supposed to happen on a certain page. And so it just does, but it doesn't feel earned, organic, natural. There's like a cause and effect. And in fact, the, I feel like it's so good that the one moment that doesn't work like sticks out to me, which is when she's like late for uh the practice with her teacher, mm. and they're going to shoot the interview, and it's like, just call the teacher and th- let them know this right. is a <laughs> like particular day thing, like <laughs> right. your family right.
3: needs you for, is happening this
0: one day. Yeah. Right. But <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a moment that, in retrospect, is kind of like the exception that proves the rule, where like everything right. else just feels so organic and earned, and you understand and empathize with each decision that's being made, and so by the end, you're just totally wrapped up in. In the goings-on of all these people and this world and yeah as you said trisha this this world feels very lived in and like well realized like by the end it does feel like i have the full texture of this place despite it being a quote-unquote like small story which is very yeah. impressive another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at
2: bankofamerica.com slash talk
0: to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: And, you know, you mentioned the family uh, like, and the these very well-drawn characters where I think a lesser version of this movie the family would just be this like three-headed conflict beast, right? Yeah. It was just like, we are, we all have the same opinion about what you're doing and we're all against it. And we all feel this one way, um, but that's not the case is, is they all have, you know, they, they all, they all feel like very individual characters, but they also have their own, motivations, as you were saying, and they all have their own relationships with Ruby um, and have sort of different opinions about what she wants from, you know, from her life and and how much she should or shouldn't be working with the family on the boat. And, you know, I love I love the brother character just because, like, even though there is tension there, like his reason for sort of being angry with her is just a completely different reason than the family, you know, and and I think like that helps make it feel very like a really organic uh the character web as opposed to again the hallmark version of this movie would just do go the easy route
3: well it feels like they all have their distinct insecurities you know like like mm-hmm. the, the brother character has this distinct inferiority complex from being compared to like the family savior as he as he calls her you know because she is is their you know tr- free translator to the world she's invaluable he is not necessarily as valuable in his mind as she is to the family You've got, you know, the mother uh, character who's worried about, like, can I be a good mom to somebody if I can't connect with them, you know, in this way? You know, if if she's if she's deaf and I if, if I'm deaf and she's not, can I ever be a full mother to her? You know, there's insecurity there. You've got, you know, the father character with all this pride and, you know, not wanting to, you know, uh, he, he knows how to do this one thing really well his dad was a fisherman his dad before that was a fisherman this is his thing uh and, and just being really stuck in, in a certain mindset so all of them have their own unique perspective and all those insecurities do come into conflict with ruby um so yeah it, it's like you said brian it's not just we're all deaf and we can't hear you sing and so that's why we don't want you to sing <laughs> like, right that that is the bad version <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it reminded me actually a lot of our conversation that we had about The Godfather <clears throat> because um, we talked a little bit in, about when we uh, were discussing that movie that the Italianness of it feels really organically baked in, like all the way down. And what that does with the individual characters in that film and this one is create these sort of very nuanced and difficult dilemmas for each of the characters and that's when movies start to feel like they have teeth right and they kind of stick with you and start to mean something where you can see all the sides of the issue. And so one thing I noticed watching it again right before this podcast is that the the mother character has not just her insecurities about how she and her daughter get along, she and Ruby, but she is disconnected from her own community Mm -hmm. right and and in a way they all are but we see that like the brother character is like i'm gonna go get a beer with these guys um and the dad is like sort of you know part of the fisherman community anyway by default but the mom like doesn't really have friends and and ruby calls that out says like oh you only see your deaf friends once a month and like you don't see anybody and you don't have any hobbies like you don't have any passions what do you do And then, you know, when we see them starting the co-op, we start to see at first some disconnect where the mom feels like she can't understand the other wives. But then she starts to become, you know, a little bit more embedded in their actual community that lives around them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, again, it creates nuance to the problem where it's not just that, like, if Ruby stops translating for her family, um they won't you know they'll be further disconnected from the world actually maybe if she stops translating for her family they'll be more connected to their world because right. they'll be forced into relationships that they otherwise might not be in and so all the problems start to feel to take on like this well but there's this side of it well ooh but there's that side of it if you go that way there's this side of it if you do that thing um the way that real life feels right like when we all decide to m- If we decide to move away from home and go to college or whatever, take the next step as adults, there's always a lot of really complicated things that that will change. It's not just I'm going to like see my family less often. There's so much rolled into what happens, you know, from that point forward. And I feel like, again, this movie does a really good job of although the broad beats are, you know, fall on the right pages and are very, you know, in some ways, I don't know, I was going to say predictable, but they're not, right? They're just, they're solid, right? It's a very Good. solid. just what
0: you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. they're,
1: they're the right ones is what I right. mean. Yeah. Um, but although, although those maybe feel familiar in the broad strokes, the actual, like, when you zoom in on any one of them, there's so much more to them that makes them feel, like, weightier and more interesting.
3: Yeah. Right it. And I think, you know, like Michael, what you said about the, the lateness problem with the teacher, I think the reason that that was the one part that stood out for me as well was that the the uh, challenges that came from all the family uh, issues, you know, the, the fact that they rely on her so much to be to be there as a translator and to be on the boat and like there's so many like very high stakes reasons that there are there are uh, you know a push and pull with her family. That when there's a, when there are these more traditionally, I think what I would expect from like a rom-com or a dramedy problems put up of like, never be late. And if you're ever late, like that's going to be a problem. That's where I'm like, well, yeah, like you said, maybe if she just explained to him very clearly, here is my exact situation. Can we find a solution for this? Like that actually is a maybe surmountable problem whereas the things with her family are not easily solved those are those are challenges that like i don't know how they're going to resolve them and so those those feel like oh wow like i don't know how this is going to end and then the stuff that feels more yeah traditional like by the numbers dramedy is like well we need some extra you know uh conflict here in this subplot so we're going to make it a real big problem if she's late and she's always late and they never talk about it
2: um yeah it's a beautiful midpoint sort of decision to have the family kind of start their own business um, because it does both things. It makes you go, oh, yay, good for you. Progress, awesome. And also, oh, crap, she really can't go to college now. <laughs> like right. So, so, it, so right. it ramps up the conflict, but not in a way, you know, you have those movies where it just feels like everything just gets worse and worse for the characters. And it's like, here's a new problem. Here's a new problem. But this is like, A solution to a problem that makes you really excited and it has, you know, montage and everything's great now, but, but at the exact same time, you're going, oh man, they really need her now. Um, And of course they don't need her because as, as we, you know, figure out through the movie, they could find another solution to their problem, but at least in the immediate um, there's, there's no way they can do what they're doing without Ruby being there. And that creates conflict as well as creating sort of triumph, which is so interesting.
3: Yeah, but I but I do think that the movie it one of my favorite sequences is when Ruby does finally rebel and doesn't go out in the boat. Mm -hmm. We see the disaster scenario. We see like what how bad it can go if she leaves, Um, you know, when when they're on the boat with the inspector and and they can't hear the Coast Guard like that. That is a really like heartbreaking sequence because you're just like, wow, like maybe there isn't a way for them to do this without her. Like, are the, is this really an intractable problem? And and I, I appreciate the movie bringing it to that lowest low in that moment where, you know, she makes a choice for herself finally, and it turns out very badly.
2: Right. Yeah. And it is also one of those interesting character choices where, you know, the father <laughs> says... If you had told us you weren't coming, we could have figured something out, but she didn't. And it's like, man, yeah, that was that was kind of crappy of you, Ruby. But at the same time, like we're on your side. But but again, that's that's what makes the characters feel three dimensional. It doesn't make them feel like, oh, she's always doing the right thing. It's like, no, she did something that was a little that was maybe not the smartest choice, but she did it for reasons that were totally behind.
1: Well, and I think that one of the problems that I always feel, not always, but often feel when I'm watching rom-coms especially um are the those problems when it's just like if these characters would talk to each other like normal human beings Uh this is not a real conflict literally open your mouth and explain the situation (laughs) and this other person will definitely understand because right Right. but what i really appreciate about this movie is the character of ruby and how clearly we understand her from very early on, and how difficult it is for her to speak her mind, be herself, like speak up about anything to her family ever, right? Like, in so many ways, even though she, you know, is like insulting her brother and like back talking her mom about like Tinder at the dinner table, like we see those things, but those aren't about like real situations, right? And when we see her out in the world where we things that she's really passionate about, like singing, terrify her. This boy that she likes, terrified of that. And so when Ruby doesn't say something about the boy, about the choir, about the things that she, you know, about the school, the audition for the school, she waits a long time. I was noticing it this time around. I was like, girl, you better tell him, like... Tell him you're in choir. Tell him you're doing this and that. And just the fact that she is scared and she delays creates conflict and raises the stakes of the conflict, especially in the second act. But it's really believable. It doesn't feel like one of those um, contrived. This character just isn't speaking up. Right. It's just it's so organic to who Ruby is. She ran out of class because she was too scared to sing happy birthday to her teacher in front of a bunch of kids she doesn't know and shouldn't care about but that in itself makes her believable when she doesn't talk about choir to her family mm-hmm. she's scared of it right it's something she really cares about and so from that point on it's just like none of that feels like the movie's the script is doing work like straining to do the work of like that this is why the characters can't have a conversation it's because of who ruby is
3: Well, it's interesting because I think the first time I watched the movie, when she ran out of class, I was like, that feels like kind of a movie-ish thing for her to suddenly, you know, just bolt in this really dramatic way. But then once you see more of the movie and she explains in conversation, my whole life I've essentially been gawked at and laughed at. Being next to my family, translating for them, not not speaking like you know like a normal kid because I'm only around my family until you know, I entered grade school. So she, I mean, from birth, she's been kind of looked at strangely by her community and treated as like kind of a freak. And so once you understand that, then all of her behavior makes sense. Of like, wow, like your whole life you have felt. Like kind of ostracized because of your attachment to your family who you love, but also part of you's gotta be really resentful because your attachment to them has resulted in your social isolation. So I think, yeah, once once you understand her full character from you know seeing more of the film, then her behavior in the beginning, which to me felt a little bit like too much, makes perfect sense and, and is not too much and is totally motivated.
0: Yeah. Well, and they do such a good job, kind of as you're putting out here, Trisha of uh using contrast in her behavior to like underscore these things right because you see her with a bunch of fishermen getting in people's face and being like no this is how much that should cost dude like like she has no problem you know uh going out there and you know getting what she needs and being confrontational in that context, which to me is, you know, like I would be terrified of that. I'm afraid of talking to people. Uh, so she has no problem with that. But then when you see the things that she is afraid of, it's like, oh, well, if you're not afraid of this, but you're afraid of that, like that's underscoring like how important these things are. And I think, yeah, that the the flaws, the nuance that we're talking about, you know, I think that the, the problem that can happen again, in rom-coms and, and lesser dramedies, is like when you don't have those flaws, it's harder for us to see ourselves in people. Mm-hmm. Like when a family is like too just clean and happy or just one-dimensional this or one-dimensional that, it doesn't, we can't connect to it and identify with, you know, that kind of perfection, whether it's, you know, they're good people or bad people. When it's monolithic, it doesn't feel real and there's no way to like identify with that. Uh, So yeah, I feel like all of that adds up and that, that because of this intractable problem that, like you were saying, Alex, I had no idea how are they going to resolve this? Like, what is the ultimate choice going to be? That also the reason this movie by the end feels epic, I think, is because the story world changes. Like all the characters have arcs and make new decisions. And by the end, she's not just made choices for her and it's not just the family, but the whole community from which she has come from has changed. And I think that's a hard thing to pull off in this kind of same organic way also. of Like logically, all the decisions made sense to kind of completely upend this little corner of this community and everyone is like better and transformed for it. And yeah, I was just very impressed by how all of that was happening in a very organic uh, way that that was very believable.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great example of a movie where, you know, you don't need anyone to like punch a hole through Australia or whatever to like have your big finale of the movie. It's like you can have someone just (laughs) deciding to go to college and you're like, oh, my God, like that's the most epic thing that could happen in this story world, in this story that you're telling. yeah
1: yeah and I think that again, there this is a masterful study in like subplots or just like sort of like subplot moments and conflict moments. Mm, yeah. because I think in a worse movie, they would take like that guy her brother gets into a fight with at the bar. They would like take that and make it like a whole big thing. And like that guy's going to learn a lesson about how to appreciate his neighbor. And like it's just going to be, you know, they're going to escalate a subplot and make it make more of it than it needs to be because it isn't about that. Right. This movie perfectly understands the function of these subplot moments, but and they don't dwell too much on them. There's this beautiful lightness of touch to them where everything is kind of secondary to Ruby's story, but it's all feeding into Ruby's story. So when the sister originally gets with the... uh, Sorry, when Ruby's best friend... Originally hooks up with her brother, I was like, this is gonna be a whole big thing. There's Mm -hmm. gonna be a, she and her friend are gonna have a big fight. There's gonna be a falling (laughs) out. And it doesn't go that way because the movie's not about that. Right. Right? The movie's not about the fact that Ruby doesn't want her brother to be, or her best friend to be happy or something. The movie, again, is about the community changing around them, including Ruby's friend who starts to see her brother in a new way. And I love the scene where they're like, at the concert together and the friend is kind of like explaining and you know we see her learning a few signs and then like it's just it's so lightly done and it doesn't need to be made more of than it is it's and the movie has like i don't know it feels like dozens of these like little story threads that then come together in the finale
2: yeah the the one line that really that really um drives that home for me is when Bernardo uh says you know (laughs) he says I have a whole other life that has nothing to do with you and he and he just like gestures to some toys behind him and it's like oh wow that's like environmental storytelling telling us there are other characters in this guy's life that we've never even seen and we see them for a scene at the end but like they're just there you know because like as you said the characters have more going on you know on a Again, the bad version of this movie is the characters are just whoever they need to be for the movie. But in order to make your your scenes and your character web and all that kind of stuff feel three dimensional, you can give them that those distant hills, that stuff on the horizon that um, that it's like we don't need to know you know, anything about his home life or anything like that. You could do that. You could explore that. But that's not what this movie is about. So we are going to indicate that there is a home life. And he's even going to mention it. He's like, I've got this whole life, but it has nothing to do with you. It's almost like saying that to the audience, right? Like, like, I've got a story, too. But that's not the story we're telling here.
1: Yeah, someone recently asked me um, on Twitter, I think it was like, what makes characters dimensional? Yeah. And the answer is this movie. Like, do they have textual motivations? Do they have any sort of like, yeah, texture to them or like, I don't know, do they occupy space in the world?
2: (laughs) Right. Right?
1: Like, and a lot of that is environmental storytelling, but it's probably noted in the script. Right. Like, and I think we do see his daughter earlier actually during one lesson
2: Mm. and it's like
1: a tiny moment in a montage, but it's like, we see her, she's right there. Right. But that's what dimensionality is. Right. Like he's, You know, it's not just him saying, like, they made my latte with disgusting nut milk and now I'm mad. right. (laughs) That's characterization in the text. But three dimensionality, like dimensionality in a character is every single supporting character in this.
2: Yeah. And also, you know, his character become so dimensional because it's like he's one of those characters the first scene you're like oh this is the cartoon character this is the comic release right. like i'm going to be doing these like snappy one liners and then he ends up becoming an incredibly you know real feeling and emotional character you know the 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 scene where he said asked her to describe how how it feels when she sings and she doesn't do it with Mm -hmm. words she does it with signs and everything uh, that was you know that was when the the floodgates started open for me Mm -hmm. um but but then you know by the end it's like even though he doesn't stop being as much of a sort of caricature as he is it doesn't matter because we have seen that that you know there are real I've I've had those drama teachers and those uh-huh. music yep. teachers, you know, they have. are yeah. they are real people. They're not just <laughs> one note, you know, uh, comedy routines for their entire life. They are they they can be a little dramatic. They can be a little out there, but they are real three dimensional people that have lives and families and hopes and dreams and et cetera.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, we get to know. Like, like he has a, a desire and there are stakes, like there's something that he is sacrificing to pursue this desire with her. Like, I feel like by the end, all that is really well rendered, where we understand he went to this music school. He's a teacher because he's good at teaching. He believes mm-hmm. in this thing that he's doing and he wants to be good at it. And as we're saying, he knows that he, you know, says and we see like, I have this other life that I like... I need you to respect my time because I'm making a sacrifice for you. And so there's like all these elements to him that make us right. under, like become invested in him and his relationship with her. And that, you know, that helps us want her to do well to make him happy because we know that that's the thing that he wants. And that's it, it is interesting how in the beginning of the film, it does seem like maybe there's like just a. This could have been a movie where there were just those flat one-dimensional versions of all these characters, but then it just kind of like subtly and methodically layers on all these other things until by the end you just like know everybody in a very full way. Yeah. Right. Right.
2: There's also a good uh, in one of the scenes with him, a good example of not insulting your audience where the lines between them about in that scene is she says, like, oh, look where it got you. And he says, I teach because I'm good at it. You know, and, and it could be, oh, look where it got you. You went to this fancy school, but now you're just a high school teacher. So what is that? Oh, well, you think being a high school teacher isn't good? Well, let me tell you what, you know, and it's like we understand all that subtext. All we need is though those two lines to understand the entire, you know, the entire breadth of what they're both saying to each other.
1: And there's that beautiful little payoff during the audition where he comes in and... I love he says his class to the like <laughs> to the auditioners where he's like hi I'm here class of 89 hello good to see you all <laughs> but then he messes up right when he sees that she's not mm-hmm. like ready um and it's like obvious but it's a payoff to the relationship that we've seen developing between the two of them and it's just it's nice to have that little payoff that puts kind of a button at the end of their relationship yeah. of like we didn't see him driving away, acting mad. She didn't show up to the audition, right? right. Like, or whatever.
2: We didn't even whatever. see him come in the door. We just hear him say, "Like, I can, I can accompany you, whatever." Can accompany like, her. again, yeah. you're not doing the obvious, the obvious things,
1: right? Again, yeah, we're not insulting the audience's intelligence, and so no, that lot, that moment when he messes up doesn't need explaining. He's like, "I'm right. sorry, I wasn't ready." We know he was ready, and we yeah. also know he's giving Ruby a chance, which is what she knows, and yeah. that's what visual that's what movie making is
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know it's so interesting because i think about his character like maybe that whole scene bumped for me on the first viewing because he does come on so strong in that like dramatic drama teacher way mm-hmm. that i was getting like it, it kind of worried i was like uh-oh is this a movie that has characters that are just like kind of sitcom like right. in an otherwise really nuanced movie and so once again i wonder if a lot of people who who do have takes on twitter right now of like this movie is not in the same like class as other Oscar nominees, you know, like didn't get past that or something. I didn't realize like there's so much more to this movie than these surface tropes that do pop up. Because I, you know, my cynical brain was looking out for that and was looking for. I want a movie that is gonna. If I'm gonna see a scene of a of a kind of over the top drama teacher, I want to feel like I'm watching a movie like that like knows that and is looking at that versus a movie where it's like, you're now in it. You're you're like this guy is making jokes. And like, these are the jokes of the sitcom. You know, there's like a subtle shift in frame there that I think like the Oscar movie is like while we are like a prestige movie, looking at a real life scene of a class with an over the top, you know, teacher, the sitcom is like, he is making jokes for the sitcom audience now laugh. And I think there's a moment in that scene where it almost feels like we're switching into that sitcom audience mode with some of the timing and the pauses of just his kind of routine for the students. Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting because this movie has those moments where it where I think you can misinterpret it almost as like shifting into that kind of TV movie frame. But if you actually watch the movie and and experience the fullness of it, it's so much richer than that as we've been exploring. So yeah, it's just, it's interesting how it's I think there's like a very surface ungenerous way to like watch this film where you just notice a couple tropey moments and then write the whole thing off, because that looks like a thing that is not what you think of as Oscar or prestige, but like textually and on screen and throughout the movie, everything's three-dimensional. Everything has stakes, everything, you know, it's a full world that's drawn so lovingly and so beautifully. Um, so it, there's a disservice to the movie to kind of just see that surface layer and say oh it's it's kind of colorful it's shot fairly traditionally that means it is not deserving of accolades you know it doesn't look artsy it doesn't look like what i think of as prestige yeah like to me that's
0: as offensive as like looking at The many bad movies that there are that have great cinematography and then being like, oh, my God, it's visionary. This is amazing. And it's (laughs) like, this is an awful movie. Like, yes, it's pretty, but like, there's no substance here. And like this movie dares to be earnest and not cynical. And I don't like modern audiences may not know how to deal with that because we don't have (laughs) a lot of movies that like really try to earnestly tell a story and generate emotion. And like, yeah, I think there is. And probably, you know, for these reasons, that we're discussing a fear of being too, yeah, earnest when doing something, when when making a comedy, when making a joke. Like, we have to, like, even our, in our superheroes, the joke has to be like, oh, that's so funny that that person thought that was funny. Or, like, there's always a little bit of distance happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: It's a joke about the IP itself. <laughs> like,
0: <you know. laughs> or just, yeah, like, I think the, there's no room for just, earnest genuine joy in movies without there having to be a little bit of like but it's okay because we're aware and we're gonna put it in a box over there don't worry you're you're not gonna feel this for too long everybody uh <laughs> and i think that that's what is like refreshing about a movie like this is that it's like oh it's just just telling a story it reminded me a little bit of like up in the air
3: because we just talked about up in the air of like oh mm-hmm. remember movie, when they just being a movie <laughs> when they
0: just made movies
3: yeah Ugh, yeah ahead a, a time <laughs> just a story about a character. Yeah. No.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's something I was really thinking about this time around, which is just that like sweetness and like love for some reason are really out of fashion. And that the as a reminder, this movie like was bought at Sundance, it was, like, truly made independently. Mm. Was I mean, it is a remake, but it was truly made independently and was purchased for a lot of money by Apple TV+. And they distributed this, but they did not develop it. This was, like, you know, a, a, a labor of love by the people who made it. And I think that that's really evident and that that's also at the heart of the story, right? Like, I think the... Edgier, like maybe more Oscar-y version of this is just tragic. Right. And like right. the family, the family can't break out of their ways and modes, and like they like forbid her to go to college and she just like dies on a fishing boat. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I don't want that That's movie. That's an like, Oscar
3: movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um and I don't want that movie. Like, I want the movie where her dad is so desperate to hear what she was singing about. That he like puts his hands on her face and on her neck and throat so he can feel the vibrations trying and like stares into her face because he wants to understand so much. Like, I I don't know why that kind of impulse like showing that kind of love on screen is so out of fashion for some reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just so endearing when those moments pop up in this movie. And I think like, we don't have to get into the Oscar race, but we can, but When you look at the other films that this is being weighed against in this year's Oscar race, there's a lot of cynicism and a lot of just (laughs) like, well, here's the meteor to end everything. Isn't it funny slash tragic and terrible, but kind of funny anyway. Everything's meaningless.
3: Bleakness is in fashion. Right. yeah, Yeah, it really
1: is. And I like I get that, you know. Um We live in unprecedented and often horrifying times, um but that 's why I like movies like coda yeah,
2: yeah. well, i mean that 's an interesting this is a whole other conversation we won 't get into, but you know i it 's funny to talk to people where it 's like what do you what kind of music do you want to listen to when you 're feeling really sad? And some people want to listen to really happy music and some people want to listen to really sad music, you know, because it's like I want I want a warm blanket of the way I'm feeling wrapped around me and other people like I want to forget about what I'm feeling. Help me change my mood. And I think, you know, in a year where Don't Look Up and Coda are both nominated for Best Picture, we can see that like we have that. No, Coda was made in 2019. Coda was uh, Don't Look Up was made. It was was, you know, shot and made obviously in a. Very current uh, uh, setting, but still it just sort of shows what we are, what we are interested in as, as audiences. We are interested in the, in the cynical thing that is looking at the negatives right now and the just very positive thing that reminds us how lovely life can be. And we just want to see people love each other on film and have some conflict, but ultimately things are good and it's makes you warm and happy. And she rides away in the car and stop. And I got to give you a hug. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah this just brings me to like the whole Oscar thing, you know, like these, these 10 movies that are for best picture that are so wildly different and like have such wildly different goals for like why they exist and what they're trying to do. It's just, it seems so futile. Like that's where it seems like so silly to be arguing about this on Twitter or whatever. Cause it's just, these are very different films trying to right. do very different things. And like to, to say, you know, this one, can't possibly win because it's it's not this or this it's like if i had my druthers the movie this year that like rocked my world was dune and nobody's Mm -hmm. talking about dune winning best picture that movie reminded me why movie theaters absolutely need to exist and why they can be like a spiritual experience that wins best picture in my book but like that's my criteria for what like matters to me right now you know but but like nobody's talking about that but like I think that should be talked about. Um, so it's just, it just brings up the kind of like almost the the crazy making for me of of Oscar uh, horse race prediction debate. Like when it gets like angry at each other, it's like this is all subjective. This is all about what you want. This is right. like, you know. So anyway, it's, it's, I found it fascinating because I, I think my Twitter feed, for whatever reason, is feeding me a lot of uh, angst about the Oscars this year. And it's just been fascinating to watch how – intense it gets when it's just like we're comparing apples and oranges. Like these are not even meant to be compared really. And that's why Coda won best picture. (laughs)
0: Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Well why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from Coda. Brian, do you want to start?
2: Sure. It's a lot of the same stuff we're talking about, but I'm going to talk about it with regard to my sort of favorite movies of the year um, list. I just sort of keep a list as I'm watching stuff and I just sort of slot something in wherever above or below things. I don't care what whether this is 17 or 19, whatever, but it just sort of helps me kind of place things. And then every year I put it out there and show people. Um, But what I've noticed this like parabolic structure to my list, which I found super fascinating Which was the top of my list, most or a lot of the movies are weird stylized things that worked for me, like the card counter or don't look up the worst person in the world, Spencer movies where I was like, oh, you did a weird thing. Maybe in some cases, like I don't even know how good of a movie you were, but like but like I you did exactly what I want from a movie. The bottom of my list were movies that did the exact same thing but didn't work for me, <laughs> like a Annette, the French Dispatch, Licorice Pizza movies where I was like, Oh, yeah, you did a challenging, weird, stylized thing. Um, and it didn't work for me. And it worked for some people, and great, because I'm glad that those people, you know, I'm glad that those movies have their audience. And then I just noticed the middle is just a bunch of safe things, like movies that I thought were perfectly fine, good job, golf clap but you didn't make it into my like even top 30, right? And it's like King Richard being the Ricardos, even something like A Quiet Place Part 2 or Black Widow, like not bad movies, but movies where I was just like, cool, good job, you you did a movie and good for you. So there's like an interesting risk reward thing going on there, right? Where <laughs> It's like, you know, but then number one, Coda, like it's just such a good lesson that like you you can still I, I mean as we've said so much over the over the past hour like you can just still make something that just feels like a a normal movie but um you know it's, it's like by the it's 110 minutes right it's like exactly everything happens on the beats and it's all there but it just it just did whatever it did in a way that worked for for me and for so many people um so you know you can still you could still do something that's not trying to be zany or unique or stylized or whatever. You can just make a good, solid thing. You just put a lot of heart into it and humor into it. And, you know, Joni Mitchell doesn't hurt ever. Um, and then you you've got yourself a best picture winner. Uh, <laughs> hey <laughs> going to be really funny to listen
1: to <laughs> when it
3: actually comes out yeah.
1: oh lord
3: it's a whole different context now i'm suddenly
2: very in- invested in what's gonna I know. happen
3: now i'm invested just because of this podcast yeah.
2: man wasn't Coda robbed can you believe <laughs> the, right. the movie that won won? I was yeah. so surprised that <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: Nightmare Alley.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean there's
3: enough movies and enough like division that like it could be a really weird winner. We have no idea. Right.
1: Yes. Sure. <laughs> Drive my car. Maybe. Who knows?
3: <laughs> um awesome. Cool. Yeah. Alex, what's your lesson? Uh my lesson is just a lesson in restraint, uh, which is basically you could have had a lot of moments throughout this movie where you go into the perspective of the deaf family members where you, mm. you know, you you show, oh, they can't hear who's singing right now or now or now. But the restraint to to wait until that pivotal concert to and, and to even let us hear like most of the concert. But then at the end where she's doing her big duet, the duet that's been built up over the course of the whole movie, we've seen her practicing for it uh, with the guy she's, you know, has a crush on. And in that moment, we finally drop into their perspective and understand like in an embodied way, what, what their world is. And I think it's just such a, such a good lesson to, if you're, if you have that tool in your toolbox, if you have, you know, this ability to to Im- impact us that way and put us in a character's headspace, wait until the right moment. And I think that was the right moment. And it, it functions to like, give you kind of a gut punch of just this is the moment where you want, you know, as a parent, to be fully with your child, like experiencing what they're experiencing, and you there you cannot, you know, yeah. just physically cannot, um, and then it makes once again the the amazing scene with her dad on the back of the truck mm-hmm. that much more powerful because you just experienced like what he's missing and what he desperately wants to to have access to
2: yeah it makes me think of um a quiet place the first one uh or sound of metal where it's like mm. being with those characters and, and you know sonically the sound design is is doing its best to put us in their headspace and everything that's a huge part of the storytelling throughout the film obviously right. but because this is ruby's story as as you just said we don't get you know we don't get a lot of those moments with the parents but then they save it for that for that pivotal moment which again just like the midpoint is a triumph moment for Ruby, but then turns into kind of a crisis conflict moment for not only for the parents, but for us as the audience, right? Because we are, we are like wanting the parents to be enjoying this moment. And instead, they're just like, we we feel kind of uncomfortable. We're kind of going to think about spaghetti in our shirts and whatever. <laughs> right. um, so it's, but it's a great time to to pull us in and remind us like really double down on, on like, don't forget this is, this is what these guys are experiencing right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's actually very related to my lesson, uh, what you just said there, Bri, because I was thinking a lot this time about not judging your characters like Mm -hmm. you as a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we often have like, you know, we pick our protagonist uh, because we like them. Right. And we want the audience to like them and and think they're right. And they are going to have a flaw, but they're going to learn their lesson by the end. And like, this is our our gal. And like, we're going to this is our hero. And everyone else around her is going to be like maybe worse than her um, or whatever. And I like that the especially her family characters in this, um, even when they're behaving in a way that we might not agree with or like might wish was different it doesn't feel like the movie is judging them for that. Again, it goes back to the dimensionality piece. So like when they're talking about spaghetti during the concert, it makes me furious where I'm like, can you just not, you know, think about something else. I know that you like Mm -hmm. can't participate fully in what's going on, but like, can you just like sit here and look attentive for your daughter, just for, (laughs) for appearances? Right. Because I just so desperately want Ruby to have that kind of support, but that's, perhaps not realistic or it just doesn't feel right for the characters um and the movie doesn't necessarily judge them for that they don't show ruby looking like noticing her parents are signing about dinner and feeling mad about it Mm. they don't show that it's just like this is you know here's a thing that happens during this because this is what they're experiencing and and whatever and the scene that really uh Lands that as an idea for me is the one where her mom tells her that she wishes she had been born deaf, right? And it's they they let Ruby ask the question, which is a very intuitive and almost like sort of a you know feels like a little bit of a scripted question, like "Do you wish that I'd been born deaf?" But the answer feels so honest in a way that we know that Ruby's mother is not judging herself and. She's not putting on some kind of like sweet persona or like answering the way that she should necessarily. She's telling the truth, which like my heart sank when they gave you a hearing test and they said she, she could hear mm-hmm. my heart sank. Yeah. Um, and then we find out the reason why and the reason why is difficult, but understandable. Right. She talks about not being able to connect with her brother who was a hearing person. Um, And wanting so desperately to connect with Ruby, that's understandable, but it's still a hard thing to tell your child that you wish they had been born differently Mm -hmm. like and at a significant disadvantage to the rest of the world, right? Ruby's life would have been a million times harder, potentially, um, had she been born deaf. And that's a hard thing to say to your daughter. Like, I selfishly kind of wanted you to be deaf so I could connect with you. But again, it doesn't feel like the movie is judging her for that. It's just letting her, like, admit a true thing for her in that moment. Um, And I think that's what helps movies like this, and especially this movie, stand apart from others. Where there's often, like, a temptation to make characters say the right thing
0: yeah um
1: characters don't have to say the right thing they can say completely the wrong thing if it's honest and that's often the most powerful scene that we come away remembering
2: yeah yeah and even just just a character admitting something that they now don't agree with but but just being very forthcoming with saying like no i did i did think this at one point or i did do this at one point
0: yeah well yeah it's it's super vulnerable and it's this sort of ties into to my lesson, which we've talked about a lot. But yeah, why why these characters feel so three dimensional, and the the aspect of that that I was really paying attention to and feeling throughout was understanding what all the characters are afraid of at some point. And I feel like this that moment they were talking about is, I think that's why it's so powerful is that she has an explanation for it that's like, this is what I was afraid of. And it's something that we can empathize with of like, oh yeah, like not being able to connect to your child is something that everybody like would be afraid of. So like, I understand the motivation because I understand the fears. And, you know, I think that's a, yeah. But I think this film does that maybe just exactly as you're pointing out in a way that is feels more honest because it's not trying to uh, say the right thing at the right time, like you said, but it is letting people express the true fear that they feel that is honest. But in that expressing of vulnerability, it forms the connection and like builds the more important, meaningful connection between the characters. So that then when people are making these big choices, these life changes, choices where they finally do do the quote unquote right thing we understand what that means and we feel it in a very deep way because we've seen exactly what they're afraid of what they hoped would happen and this is what's actually happening but that means they're making a choice with their eyes open and willing to accept the bad for the love instead
1: and there often isn't a right thing or a wrong thing in this movie and so this is where this movie is really different than the godfather but like (laughs) (laughs) you know the scene where she and her brother kind of have it out right where he talks about like uh, you know i'm here the whole time and like i'm i can read lips and like i can be useful and just because i'm not hearing no one gives me a chance right and there isn't a right like i love in that scene where It could be a confrontation where Ruby's perfectly in the right and her brother's perfectly in the wrong or vice versa. And I feel like we've seen those scenes many times before. But the fact that there's just kind of like not a right thing. Her brother wants her to go. We also want that. Mm -hmm. The reason he wants it is not the reason Ruby wants it. Right. So it's like, again, it creates this like, I don't know how to feel about this. There's a lot going on that I, I need to hold in this scene. And that's why we think about it over and over again.
3: And just you know, I think one more nail in the coffin of the Hallmark movie argument is like you wouldn't have had a scene with her and her mom where her mom tells her that really almost brutally honest truth. It would have been a scene of like, no, of course, I loved you no matter how you were, and like everything was fine when you were born, and like you were perfect. You know, like that that is what we cringe at because it doesn't feel honest. It feels like a one-dimensional, now it is time for the mother-daughter reconciliation scene. And she will say the correct thing as the mother and they will hug and it will feel like not real life. And this movie is not that Yeah, buddy. on Twitter. (laughs) Just (laughs) just don't go on Twitter. I haven't been on Twitter that much. Pretty great. I've been scrolling Twitter and seeing all this. Right. I'm sure there are people who
2: don't use Twitter who have (laughs) bad thoughts, but but (laughs) I just don't see them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Awesome.
0: Cool. Uh, What have you guys been watching recently? Brian, what have you been watching recently?
2: Uh, so our, our good friend, Sean Eastridge of the missing frames podcast had me on again. Um, and as the first round with the four of us was showing us a movie we had never seen and the second round was us showing him a movie, uh, he had never seen this time. He we're doing a movie that neither of us have seen, uh, which is really fun. It was really fun to come up with something. Um, so we were both looking at like best movies of all time lists. Like what are the big, like, what are, what's a blind spot we both have? And we uh, neither of us had seen Harakiri, which is a samurai film from 1962 directed by Masaki Kobayashi, but we had both seen a ton of Kurosawa. Uh, and Harakiri is from the same era. It's written by the writer of several Kurosawa movies. It stars Tatsuya Nakadai, who's one of Kurosawa's go-to guys, basically his his number one guy after uh, Tashiro Mifune. Um, and so it was kind of the perfect thing for both of us to go in and and like see a movie we'd never seen. And had never seen anything by the same director, but still know enough about the era and the other movies that were being made around it to really have kind of a sense of what we were getting into. Uh, And we had a blast watching it. Um, And I encourage you, you know, if you if you don't know what the movie is either, because we didn't we didn't look up the plot or anything. So I encourage you to watch the listen to the first half of the episode. hear us guess what the movie might be about. (laughs) Um, And then pause watch the movie and then come back and and listen to the rest of the episode after we've all seen it Trisha when you did AI which I had seen a couple times but in the middle of the episode I was like I want to go watch AI right now <laughs> and then I did and then came back to listen to you the second half uh, so yeah uh, Harakiri uh, and our episode check out the movie if you don't listen to our episode either way because it's fantastic uh, or is it you don't know our thoughts yet <laughs> right? like, damn it stop. <laughs> um, but also our episode on missing frames Awesome. Nice. Very cool. Okay.
3: Alex, what about you? So I'm catching up on another high school coming of age story, which is the exact opposite of Coda, which is <laughs> Euphoria season two. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the opposite.
2: Speaking of the opposite it's... of Coda, I, I felt like Coda was like Whiplash's like nicer little sister. Oh, yeah. Was totally, it the first totally. Time. Yeah.
1: It's like, look at the supportive music teacher.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway euphoria i mean if you watch the show you've probably probably already seen season two uh i mean it's trash it's pulp it's like excessive i also can't stop watching it it's undeniably just like stylish and out of control and crazy and really fun actors so yeah i don't know what to even say about it but uh it is definitely an experience and you know there is behind the scenes drama and it just you know it's not i don't know if it's good but uh it you know it, it's it's very hbo it's very extra <laughs> and it's, it's just pure style and pure uh titillation so euphoria season two is all of those things nice wow cool yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> trisha what have you been watching
1: Sure, I decided to catch up on the animated films that are nominated for Oscars this year, and I haven't quite seen them all because I, I didn't catch Flea, Brian, mm. um, which I'm very sad about. But I, I haven't yet. I have a few days to go actually before the yeah. Oscars, so it's on my list. Get there. Um, but the two that I was most excited to check out were Encanto and Mitchell's Versus the Machines, and I saw both of those, and they both really I like. They're great. They're great. Like, probably most of you have seen them by now, I would hope. And, uh, no, because actually, they're... I,
3: just, I just saw a Twitter thread about, uh, Mitchell and the Machines and I it got me really interested. To it's watch a lot it. of fun. Very oh, like Lego like so movie good. energy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So, Mitchell's versus the Machines is on your Netflix. Uh, it's a Lord nice. Miller movie. Mm. It's groundbreaking animation. It's just it's so much fun. Um, you know, I, it's about a robot apocalypse. It's really all you need to know. And like a, the teen at the heart of it is like a filmmaker. And she's trying to go to like film school. But uh, on the way there, there's a robot apocalypse led by uh, a phone phone. Um, voiced
2: by <laughs> Olivia <laughs> Coleman.
1: Olivia oh my Coleman. God. Wow.
2: Oh my God, this sounds amazing. It's yeah. so good. And, uh, Olivia <laughs> Coleman and Eric Andre was the, the yeah. villainous duo you didn't know you needed.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. It's incredible animation. It's goofy. It's like very fast moving. Like, the robot apocalypse happens on like page 10 maybe where it's mm. like i've created a robot army i hope they don't turn evil and they're like we are evil <laughs> like it's great <laughs> <immediately>. <laughs> so, yeah. it's great um it, it, there's just so much to love about it uh, and it's also just a sort of celebration of gen z and they're like filmmaking youtube ways and the mm. way that they see the world and their like weirdnesses and hmm. everything about them um it's beautiful and then Encanto just what it's so good like uh it's you know if you don't know uh, another story about there. both and both of these movies are about families by the way so if you liked coda uh then both of these movies are for you they're about like young women learning to connect with their families who have don't understand them um and so, yeah, there's uh, Encanto is about like a young woman who comes from a family where everyone has magical powers and she does not and hmm. feels left out by that fact. And um, it, it's beautiful. The music is Lin-Manuel Miranda. And uh, it's, it's very I would love to talk to you guys about Encanto sometime um, because.
2: We don't talk about Encanto.
1: Oof, there it is. <laughs> How to do it? <laughs> I know. Look, like, they don't know. They're that's just smiling. They have frozen probably, expressions. They, they have no either. idea what they're. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea what you just said, Brian. Um, do you, Michael? No, I right? haven't. What I haven't
0: seen it. I do have okay. close friends that have been telling me to see it for forever because it's. Amazing, I would watch so. and talk about both those movies. Yeah. yeah,
1: they're both really great. But the thing that's fascinating to me about Encanto is that it's an old-fashioned kind of musical where, like, the characters are dancing. Like, there's mm-hmm. choreographed dancing for the characters, but it's animated. Hmm. And it's also, like, the music is undeniably Lynn manuel Miranda also, and so it feels like it's all happening, I don't know, in, like, a weird, like, we just did a live-action musical, but we animated it kind of a way. Huh. Um, hmm. It's really interesting. I don't know if I can think of another example that's similar to that that wasn't made in like the '90s. Uh, but yeah, t- really fascinating animated race this year. i uh, Can't wait to see what picks it up. Lin Manuel Miranda might get his EGOT. He probably already got it, guys. Uh, by the time you hear this, <laughs> yeah. so There's but so he much is, we don't know that you uh, know. I know. <laughs> but if he does, if he does win for Dos Oruguitas, which is nominated hmm. um, from Encanto this Sunday, he will. Pick up his egot. Nice.
2: Trent Reznor's one away.
1: Which one is he missing? <laughs>
2: Tony, so it's gonna be one <laughs> yeah, yeah, Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, it could happen. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: okay. Well, Spotify listeners, do you want us to do Encanto? That's your question. Ooh. Let us let us know. Um
1: Love it.
0: Um yeah, I'm excited. I think I think I've been one over. Um Awesome. What
1: have you been watching, Michael?
0: So I have been listening to a podcast and maybe this is like too weird of an episode to bring it up on, but I just literally happened to listen to this today. It's a Radiolab episode called The Helen Keller Exorcism about... A, so there's apparently on TikTok there have been conspiracies about Helen Keller going around, where like <laughs> she didn't exist or she was like faking it or like all these things. And uh, uh, yikes! Yeah, and so it's this like it's th- this uh, like reporting journey that Radiolab goes on with this fantasy writer Elsa Schindlison. I can't say her last name, um, but she's a deafblind person. And has been compared to Helen Keller for all of her life. And it's just a really fascinating episode that goes into like the true story of Helen Keller and how much more of a complicated and fascinating person she was than the version that many of us may have learned about when in school and was like kind of like a radical, like a political radical and just all these things. The good and the bad, and it it was just, it was interesting on the surface to just learn more about a person that, you know, I'd kind of only known the simplified, uh, cleansed mythology of, but also an interesting examination of like, what do we do with uh, important figures in history and the complications that come with the lives that they lived In the context in which they lived and the things they said and all that stuff. So, yeah, so I thought it was just a really interesting and very moving uh, exploration of a lot of things. So, yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Very cool. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, this has been our conversation about Coda. Next week, we're going to talk about Casablanca. Yeah, (laughs) classics. The classic. Can't get much Mm. more classic than that. Right? It's
2: like I want that. to say the original Best Picture winner. It's not, but it feels like it. Right.
0: Is. It, it was the first movie. So,
2: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yeah, it's good. I'm very excited to uh, revisit it and, like, yeah, to talk about yeah. it. I'm realizing I'm wanting to start the conversation now, but we can't for <laughs> wrapping up an episode. Shame it, sweetheart. <laughs>
3: good impressions next week yeah
0: the, there's a whole i watched a video also recently about like the old the movie voice thing that old like all old movies have. the mid-atlantic accent yeah exactly mm-hmm. and it's yeah it's always fascinating we should do next week's episode
2: entirely in a mid-atlantic uh, Catherine Hepburn all the way, darling.
1: <laughs> we'll let Brian, which do just it. means Brian's
2: going to do the whole episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I did literally study every vowel of it in college. So wow, yeah, I, can't done. wait to
1: find out why. Yeah,
2: <laughs> tune in next time, and we'll get all the another way in Brian delay. story.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, we want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Calleros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you next time for Casablanca.
1: Bye, everybody.
2: Bye-bye. Bye.